I'm back. All right. All right, all right, all right. Let's pray and get ready and dive in. Father, we thank you um, for, um, I, I don't know if we want to call this round one or what we want to call it, but Lord, thank you for your grace uh, on this ministry and the people that you've caused to gather here, lives that have been changed here, Lord God, um, the work that you're doing um, in the world. And so, Lord God, we pray that um, today, again, that we would be hearers of your word and doers of your word. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord God, my strength and my redeemer in whom I trust. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Um, thank the Lord for his grace and allowing us to gather this morning. It's exciting um, to see. Um, I, I, you know, I was prepared to, you know, if it was going to be three people and we were just going to be praised at and I, just the three of us up in here this morning. You know what I'm saying? I, we didn't know what to expect. Um, and so it kind of feels like we're starting all over again. It kind of feels like 2006 all over again. And so we're excited to see the Lord up to so much. And, and um, so many of you guys become our visitors, um, and, our, and our, especially our leaders, um, different leaders, our praise band, our singers, um, IT media, everyone who, hospitality, everyone, facilities, everyone who's playing a role in helping this happen. God bless y'all. Thank y'all. And um, we about to dive in. So Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1, um, I was scared going to first two gatherings and preaching Colossians 1. Because it, it makes a preacher long-winded, um, you know what I'm saying? Because Colossians 1 is just so rich. And today we're talking about our core values. Say core values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to be talking, we're going into a new series um, that talks about our core values. It's going to be really, really important that we sync up together. Just like um, when, I, when I add new contacts to my phone and when, when I get new emails and when I download music, all of those different things, one of the things that's important for me is that I connect my phone to my laptop and make sure I have it backed up. And, you know, I got a little mobile me account, you know, so it, it puts it off in cyberspace somewhere and holds all of my information there so that as I sync my phone, as I sync my phone to my computer, um, they are holders of the same information. And the same thing has to happen with Christians. Christians have to sync up with what God values in order that we may hold the same information. And so when we go through and when we talk about this idea of core values, this is not preferences. You know, many people use core values as a way to talk about uh, their preferences and what they value. However, in us talking about our core values as a church, one of the big things for us is we, we, we feel like we're syncing up with what God values. And so... Let's say these together. Our core values are commitment, community, communion, culturally relevant ministry, communion, and conversions. Okay? They, and so we're excited. Right? We're excited. I know they swipped the flip, flip, flipped them. My bad. Let's do them again. Number one. <laughs> that was my bad. Sorry. Uh, commitment, community, Christocentrism, culturally relevant ministry, communion, and conversions. And we're going to dive into those over these next six weeks. I promise you I won't double up. I promise it'll be six weeks, okay? I promise. By the, by, by the grace, as long as the Holy Ghost, you know, he's sovereign. 
You know what I'm saying? Don't blame me if the Holy Spirit do something different, all right? So, so, so let, let's talk about Christocentrism, okay? Now, by definition, I'm, I'm kind of tweaking the definitions of our core values to make them even more clear. And, 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 and so that people can walk away kind of getting a picture of our core values. And today we're talking about Christocentrism. Say Christocentrism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christocentrism is the passion of the Christian whereby we acknowledge him, that is Jesus, as the means, the motivation, and desired end for our life. Jesus is not merely first in our lives, but he is the center and fuel for everything. And so when we talk about this idea of Christocentrism, everything in our life must, uh, must see itself sourced in Jesus as the means, the motivation, and the desired end of our life. And we're going to, I want you to hold your finger in Colossians because I want to defend this from the Godhead first. How many, I don't know if you know this, but the Godhead is Christocentric. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all agree that Christ should be the center of everything. It's powerful. Turn with me real quick over to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. Matthew 17. And this is where they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. Make sure you hold your finger in Colossians, especially if you had a hard time finding it in the first place. Make sure. Make sure. You hold your finger there. It's all right to have a hard time. We all got to grow. Matthew Matthew 17, this is a powerful passage. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured or changed. I don't even know if we really know what that means. Before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Then it says, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, if you wish, I will make three tents or tabernacles here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was, speak, he, was speak, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Now, this is funny. Now, Peter um, says, yo, Peter gets so rocked, he says, I'm going to make three tabernacles. You know, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for you. And all of a sudden, heaven got frustrated. And heaven got so, it's rare in the Bible when the father makes an appearance. Very, very rare. The last time he made an appearance is when the people of God asked Moses to tell God to stop talking to them. Like, just you talk to us. We're here. We don't want to talk to him no more because he's scaring the daylights out of us, right? And so, but, but God the Father sees that Peter is equating Elijah and Moses with Jesus, and the father said, you know, I can't just act how I want to act. So I'm going to just show up in a cloud. Like. And so he shows up and it says, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Powerful. And so the father, he says, 
It's as if the father was like, I'm cool with Elijah. You know, I'm cool with Moses. Matter of fact, I appointed them. But I'm centering things in my son. In other words, I, I want you to listen to him. And I, Peter, first off, I want you to stop talking for a while, Peter, because you talk too much sometimes. And so I need you to just be quiet, and I want you to listen to him. In other words, in other words, God wants things sent. God the Father is passionate about things being centered on Jesus. So much so, it says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Good reaction. It says, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That's powerful. The father is concerned about whether or not we get a booming picture of Jesus. And, 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 and he's affirming, like that's why when people like cults and different things try to act as if worshiping Jesus and being Jesus being centered is some type of idolatry. It's not because he's God and it pleases God to make things happen through his son. He said he was pleased to crush him. In Isaiah 53, it says, in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 1, it says, the Father has revealed himself in many ways and in many forms, but he has revealed himself in these last days in his Son. So the Father centers in what God is so Jesus-centered that he's Jesus-centered, and, so, um, and, and so he wants us Jesus-centered. But what's so powerful is not only is God the Father Jesus-centered, but the Holy Spirit is Jesus-centered. Turn over to John chapter 16. John 16, verse 12. John 16, verse 12 through 16. It says, in verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority or initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you all the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, and he will, t he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is Jesus-centered, not man-centered. Many people, especially in churches, make the, the work of the Spirit centered on a human being and a man, and it's about him and about blowing on people and laying hands on people and choirs falling out, and it zooms in on the person and brings things to the person but the Holy Spirit is not concerned about the power of human beings. And he is, he, is, he, is, he is concerned about empowering human beings for Jesus to be central. So, so the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean we deny the power of God. That's not what we're doing here. We're just making sure that when his power is active, that he gets the glory for it in his son. And so the Holy Spirit here is saying, yo, the Holy Spirit is a, a, he's a, he's a, he's a bloodhound. He's a, he's a Christ-centered hound. He loves sniffing out and activating work that centers itself on the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth 
that the spirit leads us into is always truth about Jesus. If it's a miracle that takes place, if someone speaks in a different language, if someone has the gift of discernment, if someone has the gift of leadership, the gift of mercy, the gift of administration, all of those things through the work of the spirit is to point people to Jesus Jesus alone, not to point them to us and our flyness and our coolness and our sweetness and our gorgeousness, but it's to point us to Jesus. That's the center of the work of the Spirit. Jesus alone, Jesus alone, Jesus alone. And if you see anybody activating anything that is supposed to be a work of the Spirit, but it doesn't point to Jesus, the Spirit may have not done that. Yeah. That's very, very important. So, so listen, I said the Godhead. Now, now, God the Father, he's Christ-centered. God the Spirit, he's Christ-centered. There's only one dude left. And I, I'm pretty sure he's Christ-centered. Now, somebody would say, how in the world is Jesus going to be Christ-centered? That's self-centered. No. See, because he's God, he can affirm himself and not be unrighteous and prideful in it. Because he's the one that can be purely right when he speaks of himself. <laughs> Y'all going to get that on the way home. And so, <clears throat> and, so, and so John 15, verse 5. Y'all can probably say it by heart. Apart from me, you cannot do anything. It don't get no Christ, more Christ in it than that. <laughs> it, it, I mean, I know that's simple. You know, but that's Christ in it. Christ is flossing centering everything and our ability in life on himself. And the father affirms it because he says, listen to him. The spirit says, I'm doing this unto him. But Jesus says, you can't do it unless it's done through me and connected to me. So the father is Christ-centered. The son is Christ-centered. And the Holy Spirit is Christ-centered. However, if the Godhead is Christ-centered, that I know, I know that there's a certain group of people that must be marked by Christ-centeredness. <clears throat> there's a group of people that, and, and, and they are called, his called out ones, his assembly, his gathering, the church. And so when we look at Colossians, back to Colossians, Colossians is about the church being Christ-centered. Because God is Christ-centered, the Godhead is Christ-centered, the church must be Christ-centered. The book of Colossians is written really <clears throat> to recenter the Colossian church on the, central, the centrality and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been, based on Colossians 2.8, they had been carried away by various philosophies of men to the point where they thought that their lives could orbit someone, someplace, and something else. And so Paul, Paul zooms them in and helps them to get in through their thick skulls that Jesus Christ must be central. And so we're going to read chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I wanted to do more verses, but um, I said I'd stop at verse 20. These are so pregnant, I'm going to have to pass information. I'm just letting you all know. We can't even unpack all of this today, all right? But look at, look at, let's read the verse. He says, he is, that is Jesus, the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is everything, be, um, might, the everything that in everything he might become preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, say all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is ridiculous. Okay. These, these verses are, are, are so rich and pregnant with nutrients and truth, and I guarantee you, you want them to be a part of your scripture memory repertoire. And, 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 so, and so as we look at this, we see that in the mind of Paul that he wants the Colossians not to allow anything to trump the picture of who Jesus is in their lives and him activating his work in their lives. This should not be a tenet of Reformed theology only. It should be a tenet of every theological genre within Christianity. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be some alien philosophy of people who, like, I'm Reformed. So, like, that don't mean nothing. Christ should be centered in all Christian sectors. Somebody ought to hear me today. It's foolishness that you got to say you reform so somebody can know you Christ. And all, like, when, when since did one sector of Christianity hold the, the flag of Christ-centeredness? It should be the mark of every Christian. We can, we can, we can, we can get frustrated on the peripheral doctrines, but, but some stuff we shouldn't even be arguing about. Like, I mean, we, ain't gotta, we shouldn't even be arguing about this. You know what I'm saying? And I got some stuff to say about this too. So what in our lives eclipses the centrality of Jesus? Let's start with that before we even get in these verses. What in our lives trumps or eclipses the centrality of Jesus? I'll name some things. I know you can't think of nothing right now. It's early. Holding our view of others too high. Holding our view of men's opinions too high. Holding people's perception too high. Holding our natural abilities too high. Holding normal provisionary streams too high. Oh, let me break that down. Let me break, because y'all got real quiet on that one. Let me, let me chop that up real quick. See, whenever you're used to money coming from a particular stream, you forget that God is the one that provides it through Jesus. Yeah, and so what happens is, is when God rustles up some stuff a little bit, you get frustrated because it seems like a brook dried up on you. Somebody ought to hear me. But, but, but you don't realize that it wasn't the brook that was providing for you. But it was the God of thunder and rain who was causing rain to fill the brook so that you could drink from. And whenever God sees you loving the brook more than his beauty, he will dry up the brook to make you look back at him. 
So, 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 so God said, oh, you looking at, oh, you, you, you like going shopping every weekend, huh? Oh, you like going eating out every weekend, huh? Oh, you, oh, okay. You know what? You like that. You don't thank me for nothing. You don't bless me for nothing. You don't give to the kingdom. You just expect the stream to keep coming. I am going to dry it up. Because God will make us Christ-centered if it hurts us. <laughs> Next, holding our preferences too high. I prefer this. You know, and we are kind of sewer culture here. You know what I'm saying? Me included. I ain't going to lie. I don't drink uh, uh, Dunkin' Donuts and, and coffee and McDonald's coffee. I drink certain types. So when you got a preferential philosophy of life, God said, you got, you know, you got too many preferences. What you going to do if an atomic bomb drop and I give you freeze-dried coffee? Are you going to thank me for that? I'm just going off the, I don't know where I'm going with that. But, but in other words, God doesn't want our preferences to trump his biblical principles centered in Jesus. But then, holding our passions too high. See, many of us want Jesus to orbit our passions, not our passions to orbit Jesus. You see what I'm saying? And, and, and so and some people say, I'm just a passionate person. And that you're supposed to excuse them of something because they're a passionate person. I don't care how passionate. Your passions are redeemed to serve the Redeemer. Now, let's get in the text. Let's get in the text. First point. Jesus is central in creation. Crazy. Now, I just want you to underline some stuff. Now, let's just watch how Jesus centered this passage is. I'm going to just underline. The, I want you to underline the pronouns here. Verse 15, he is. Verse 16, by him. Verse, verse 16 in the latter part, through him and for him. Verse 17, he is. <laughs> verse 18, he is. Again, he is in verse 18. Verse 19, in him. Verse 20, through him. And in verse 20, also to himself. Now, it was seen that just by the nature of the pronouns in the passage that Paul is trying to send us, a, send us a, 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 a picture of something. He's trying to send us a picture of his belief in this. this Christocentrism is not something that Epiphany came up with that was nice and cool to plant a church with. Oh, it's cool to be Christ-centered now. Let's be Christ-centered. No, this is two G's ago. This two G's ago when, 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 when Paul was writing. He wrote this in the early centuries of the church, and he was like, fam, it, it, it should be normal that Christians can say to themselves, apart from him, we can't do anything. And he says, just in case you think he started at the cross, he says, he says, he didn't start being central because he died on the cross. <laughs> See, that's my problem with cats that think cross-centeredness is the beginning of Christ-centeredness. No, sir. No, sir. The only reason the cross can be central is because Jesus got on it. And so his flyness was eternally blowing himself and the Godhead away. Enjoying himself in his glorious flyness. And it says, he is the image of the invisible God. Powerful. Powerful. When it talks about this idea of Jesus being 
of the image of the invisible God, it means as an embodiment or living manifestation of God in both form and appearance. Now, when we say form, we mean essence. We don't mean that Jesus was like a little action figure of God for humans to play with. He, he's not like an action figure. No. He, he, in form, Jesus, Jesus uh, uh, is equal in essence with God. That means everything that makes God, God, makes him God too, and he has it too. In other words, in other words he, although he's subordinate in rank, in essence, he's equal with God. And so when it says he is the image of the invisible God, it's different than in Romans chapter 1 when it says that, that God's invisible attributes can be seen through what has been created. In other words... The difference between natural revelation and Jesus being special revelation is nature points to God. That's the difference. But Jesus doesn't just point to God. He is God. And so because of that, he, he, he's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the visible expression of the invisible gorgeousness of the Godhead. And so, and so when we look here and we look at this, it says several things. Jesus is not just an image as a replica. He's not an idol representing Yahweh created in the image of God, but as one who shares and possesses the essence of God. This is to show that Jesus is God himself. It's interesting when I look back, at, at, you don't have to turn there, at John 14, 8. I think Philip got tired of Jesus, right? Philip kind of got tired of Jesus. He said, he was just sitting there, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but me. And I can see Philip there with the 12 kind of sitting there like, like he always talking about the Father. I mean, I mean, I mean, we've been chilling with, like, it's almost been three years, man. Like, we've been suffering with him, putting up with his sins and cats walking off. They're like, he, he just said, I'm going to go out on a limb. He said, um, Jesus. I mean, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but by me. We've been with you all this time. You're talking about showing people who haven't come to you yet the Father, but you ain't showed me the Father. Am I right about it? Everybody like, I don't I mean, are you going to go out there with Philip on the limb? And, and you know what I'm saying? And he's, he, said, he said, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, You's a wild young man. Wow. He said, Jesus, I don't know if Jesus went and cooled off and prayed. Because if I was Jesus, I would have like brought out a sword out of my arm and just, 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 just tore your man up right here. But, but Jesus is so smooth. He's, he, and it's, and he's so gracious and merciful. Even in the midst of our frailties. And he says, he says to Philip, he says, have you been with me so long? Have you, have you been with me all this time and you still don't get it? Have, in other words, Jesus is proclaiming. He said, yo, man, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, he ain't talking about like us, like God was in this place, you know. Today when we was worshiping, you know, God, the Holy Ghost was flying through. We saw his mist and it was great. That's not the same thing. That's not what we're talking about here. He said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Not just acts of the Father. Not just works of the Father. 
But if you've looked at me, you've seen tucked inside of me everything that the Father is without actually seeing. In other words, if you knew who I was, you would understand that me incarnating is actually protection. My flesh is protection from God's essence killing you. So if you see me, God just shield. See, I could have blown y'all cats away a long time ago. But we're so merciful as the Godhead. We're so glorious and we're so loving and just that, that I have a sin, a, a, a body without sin, and it's tucking away everything that I am so that I won't just blast off on you cats. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so Jesus. That's, that's not just like some other people who don't believe in the deity of Christ just want to kind of make it as if, you know, Jesus was just saying he was exemplar. He was being exemplary in his actions. No. Who else said that? Who else made such a statement? Paul said, if, follow me as I follow Christ. He didn't say, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus. He ain't never say that. He ain't never say that. He said, be imitators of God. Right? And so it's powerful here in the text that you see um, your man, um, um, Jesus, um, the God-man, um, showing himself. Now, what's interesting about this text is it's proclaiming Jesus as the cosmic God-man. Cosmic God. It's like making his, I mean, it's beautiful the way in which the Godhead is laying out who the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And it says, firstborn of all creation. Now, now, when you talk to a Jehovah Witness, they'll try to say, oh, it's just saying he's pre- he's, he, um, he was the first to be created. Now, to, to, to be fair, exegetically, that could be a possibility. However, when you go throughout the, the corpus of Scripture and this text and the semantic domain of this word firstborn, it means primary in rank. I like that. That means that Jesus has the highest stripes. Like, if we had government uniforms, and you know how they had their rank right here, like, on, on all those colored bars, like, like Jesus' rank wouldn't be able to fit on all his gear. Like, that's how high his rank is. He just, be, he just, just got a tattoo with his, dad, with his na- nickname on it, you know, by the father. Because clothes couldn't even handle how much love his ranking would be. You know what I'm saying? A- ask John. John said, I'm telling y'all, it's one coming after me that's higher in rank than I. In other words, there is kingdom ranking that the Godhead is set up to show who is preeminent and who's not. And so when we look here and him being firstborn of all creation, it means preeminent, glorious, first, highest of the ranking order of all creation. And it says, for by him, I love that, for, say by him, <laughs> all things were created. I like that. So, it, so, so, so listen, when it says, I, I, I used to, I hate when my pre-Hebrew Hebrew props didn't take it to the, uh, to the full extent of Genesis 1 when it says, let us create man in our likeness and our image. Now, that ain't, he ain't talking to the angels. I, I just, I don't care what anybody says. He's not talking to angels about their image. Because we're not created in the image of angels. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 1 quotes back the Psalms to say that Jesus and us were made a little lower than the angels, but we weren't made in the image of the angels based on John uh, James. Because James says, I know I'm all over the place in the scriptures, but write them down. James says that the reason why we don't kill people is because they're born of the image of God. And so when we look here and we see Jesus, all things being created 
by him, Jesus Christ is the creator of everything. He's not just the means of creation. He's active in creation. So when God the Father said, let us make man in our likeness and our image, it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit joining up, linking up together to participate as a unified front to create human beings. And, and it's interesting that he says that everything was made by him, and then, it's, then it tells you what was made by him. <clears throat> it says, in heaven and on earth. All realms of sentient beings. Then it says, visible and invisible. <clears throat> that means angels, seraphim, cherubim, those are three different types of beings, heavenly creatures. All of those things were made by Jesus. Jesus created angels. I'm rocked by that. The people that are his real armor bearers in eternity, they don't, uh, you know, they don't carry nothing for him. They just cover him up so he won't blast off on people. Seraphim, cherubim, living creatures, heavenly things. And it says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In other words, Jesus Christ is, he's the structural manager of eternity. <laughs> he's, he's, he created the infrastructure of eternity, not just created eternity. Now, I don't even understand what I'm saying right now, but it's powerful and it sounds good. <laughs> right? <laughs> But, but what's so powerful about Jesus is Jesus not only partook of creating everything, but he developed the ranking infrastructure of creation, the ranking infrastructure of invisible and visible creation, angels and everything. And so when Satan failed, he took that structural management of Jesus and created his own kingdom and kept his own, kept Jesus' structure and used it demonically. That's, that's where Ephesians 6 comes in. Whole nother message. Altars and tents. In Hebrews, it says that everything on earth is, that, that they made in the tabernacle was a visible replica of what was in heaven. It was merely a copy. That means that when Moses got the instructions for the temple, he got them based on Jesus' eternal structure of heaven. It's crazy. Outer court, inner court, holies of holies, What's Jesus' idea, the Bible says? He said, we're going to have a place that nobody really can come into. Father and the Holy Spirit, I like that. I like just us being back here and people having to work their way in and looking at that. But then one day, you're going to be slain, Jesus. And people will be able to come right in here with us in the midst of this unapproachable light that we dwell in. And, and so, and so let's, let's, let's make them appreciate it by developing levels of being in our presence. Somebody going to get it later. And, and, and Jesus structured the ability for humans to appreciate what it means to be in God's presence. Woo! I wish I had time. <laughs> but not only visible and invisible creation, it's whether thrones and dominions and all that. It says all things were created through him. He's the means of creation before him. Stop there. I love that. For him. Say for him. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Jesus, it's interesting. The for here is a, a, a clause that forces, it's a purpose clause. It's a clause of purpose. In other words, everything that Jesus created, he created it with an already ordained purpose in his mind. Everything. He created your hair with a purpose. 
He created your eyeballs with a purpose, your tongue. He, he even created earwax with a purpose. That's powerful. Now, if, a, if something lands in your ear and it eats the earwax, it's poison for them and it dies. He made that. You thought it was just dirty. <laughs> and there's something about even the minute things in our life that point to Jesus. In other words, earwax is pointing us to Christ's protection of us, even. Powerful. Even your life. Some of you all are looking for purpose. And God has already, through Christ, created you with purpose. You are booby-trapped with purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says you were created in Christ Jesus beforehand with good works so that you could walk in them. And so Jesus as creator is the author of our goals, the author of our passions, and the author of our direction. I got to go to the next thing. I could spend all day on that. Next, Jesus is central in the church. Jesus is central in the church. Now, I may not get to the last part because of how mad I'm going to be right here. So excuse me if I have some righteous indignation and anger and frustration um, about this. So pray for me silently. Jesus being central in the church, look at this. And he is the head. He is the head. Stop there. Kafale, say kafale. Kafale is a powerful word that points to source or headship by which we take our P's and Q's from alone. And head in position of body points to the epicenter of where information and practices and passions are stored and distributed and commanded throughout the body. I'm blown away by many of our churches who if you go to them, it's hard to see whether or not Christ is central. It's hard. Cat walking in, got nine people flanking him, holding his Bible, his jacket, his earrings, and hand towels. The man of God, the man of God. I will man of God you into the ground. How about that? The head of the, it's it seen everything, I remember some, a church recently, a church recently, a dude stood up and said, read Hebrews passage about the high priest. And then he said before the church that our pastor is our high priest. I was like, what? Like, and you don't, I'm like David when them situations, I know we all got issues, but I'm a little like David. I'll pray the Psalms like, take him out, God, put him to sleep. Take him out. I ain't no repentance. Just die. When he stands up to glorify himself, just have him, un, un, have him drop dead in front of God's people and then stick a sign in his neck that says, I glorified myself before Jesus Christ. Rest in peace. Put it on his gravestone, punk. Christ is center. He's the head of the church. 
I am under his authority. The leaders are under his authority. We are not to be worshipped. I wish I would be preaching and God doing the work. And you start signing my shoes, I will kick you. But some of y'all don't realize that happens places. That happens places. Where, it, where, it, where, the, where, the, where, the, where the beauty of Jesus is cluttered with the passions of men. And people are more passionate with the streams of the man of God than they are with the God-man. And I'll lose. I'd rather be disrespected as a pastor. Rather, because we can work from there. I'd rather be disrespected and not served. Then for Jesus, because that just means I got to get myself together, work on my heart, and allow God to work on folk. But I, I would rather work from that vantage point than to have to work from the vantage point of having to realize that I wanted more exaltation than Jesus. I, 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 that scares me. I'm fearful that I would get more glory in the church than our Lord. And so the reason why we make a big deal about him is because I'm nothing. These elders that are going to get appointed, they're nothing. Our worship is nothing. Our building is nothing. The only thing that makes everything something is Jesus. 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 No one should be preeminent in the church. All of our thoughts should go to him and him alone. No one. And you should rebuke anyone. I don't care how high in authority or low they are. If it ever looks like they're taking what Jesus deserves. He should be preeminent. He should be worshipped. He should be central. He should be loved. He should be who we think about. All the time. So when it says he's the head of his body, this is not my church. This is his church. His. He told Peter, shepherd my sheep, not your sheep. How dare we? How dare we take his glory? Isaiah said, he doesn't give his glory to anyone else. The Bible says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That means that Jesus Christ was the first to get up from the grave as the prototype of everyone who will be resurrected one day. The Bible so fly about it, it says, it's not yet, Paul don't need, now you know what, Paul is under inspiration. And he said, I don't even know what we're going to be like. He said, because it's unfathomable. He said, but all I know is we'll be like him. Like him. Not like anybody else. I mean, the only adjective for being like him or sending him is being like him. <laughs> I don't know if you got that. Ain't no other way to describe it. And, I mean, and, 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 and what's so beautiful is that he took the die for us first. I got to go to my next point. Y'all know I'm used to talking a long time. Woo! Finally, Jesus is central to shalom. 
Jesus is central to shalom. Look, look at verse 19. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself. I'm going to just stay, stay right there. Stay right there. Stay right there. Reconcile. Say reconcile. This is the goal of Jesus. This is his goal. Reconciliation. Now that's a term we throw around. But this is what reconciliation means. The word for to reconcile means strictly to transfer from one state to another. Quite different state. Hence, broken interpersonal relationships from enmity to favor. Wow. Let me just read these descriptions. I'm, I may jump, I may bunny hop over the pulpit on this one. Restoration of friendly relationships of peace where there had previously been hostility and alienation. Ordinarily, it also includes the removal of the offense that caused the disruption of peace and harmony. This was especially so in the relation of God with humanity when Christ removed the enmity existing between God and mankind by his vicarious sacrifice. The scripture speaks first of Christ's substitutionary death in effecting reconciliation of God with sinners, of sinners appropriating this free gift of faith, the promised forgiveness and salvation that became the sinner's possession by grace, and finally, reconciliation with God. Check this out. The term signifies, first of all, reconciliation with God, the world, expressing God's initial change of heart towards sinners. That's crazy. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God initiated reconciliation by choosing to place his affections on us while we were not affectionate. Wanting to bridge the gap through the sun, reconciliation. He wanted, he put affections on us and towards us even while there was enmity between us. Do you understand that? <laughs> That's crazy. <clears throat> the problem is not rightly addressed by questioning whether or not the changing, the unchanging God ever changes his mind. That's not it. Check this out. The situation rather is one where an altered relationship now exists between God and sinners by Christ interposing sacrifice on behalf of fallen mankind. So God doesn't change. He changes us. And he's able, by not violating his holiness, to rightly place affection and blessing on us because he's made us right with himself. But he didn't wait until we got it right to place his affections and love on us. But it wasn't done by God the Father. It wasn't done by God the Spirit. It was done by God the Son. Why do we place our affections wholly and solely on Jesus? Because it pleases the Father. Because it pleases the Spirit. And it pleases the Son. And it makes us pleasurable. What's beautiful is that Jesus wants to reconcile 
everything to himself. And as ministers and ministresses of, re of reconciliation, he has called us in Christ-centeredness to seek restoration and reconciliation every single place on earth where there's a breach within our circle of influence. I got to stop. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the ability to experience your reconciling work. It is mind-boggling and mind-blowing, God, that you would place your affections and passions on us when there was nothing about us that was beautiful or pleasurable. And so, mighty one, will you teach us how to place Jesus center practically? Every, in everything that our lives, help them to be aligned with the Lord Jesus the Christ. And we want to honor you and we want to praise you. We want to bless you and even lift you up in everything we think and everything that we do. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're here today.